2: Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, your weekly media current affairs panel show. I'm Rafael Garcia, bringing you a special edition of Fourth Estate, talking about issues affecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the media, fresh off the back of NAIDOC Week. And joining me in the studio, we have Malandiri McCarthy, producer of NITV News. Hello, Malandiri.
0: Hello, Raf, and hello to all your listeners.
2: And we also have Alan Clark, National Indigenous Affairs Reporter with BuzzFeed Australia. Hello, Alan.
3: Hi, thanks for having me on.
2: Thank you for joining us. And on the phone, we have Summer May Finlay, team member of the Just Justice Project. Hello, Summer May. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, thanks for joining us. And to have your say on the issues that we're discussing, get in touch with us through Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU, and that's all letters, no numbers. And remember, you can now find Fourth Estate's weekly podcast on iTunes and on SoundCloud, where you'll be able to listen back to this episode and many others. With NAIDOC Week just gone, the idea of a referendum on constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples is fresh on everyone's mind. Bringing about a referendum is no easy thing, with changes to the Constitution really only possible when critical mass are on side, which is proving very tough from what we can see. How? critical would the role of Australian media be in a a referendum if it was to be held in 2017, Malandiri?
0: Well, the media's role would be very critical, RAF, for any referendum in terms of communicating uh, what the issues are, what the messages are from all parties and all quarters who have a voice in the debate or who are pushing a particular agenda. So... If we're looking at 2017, it is critical that uh, every journalist and every media outlet uh, knows what the, the facts and the points are uh, that need to be highlighted.
2: Alan, what is the role that media can play in this? Can, can it help bring everyone together or how does that work?
3: Well, I don't think it's uh, the media's role to bring everyone together on a, on a general consensus. I think that is for the individual parties and the individual you know, kind of people who are championing championing certain models to do that. I think where the media plays a, a critical role is, is, is being able to unpack the issue. It's an incredibly complex issue. At the moment, there are four kind of thoughts around how the constitutional recognition would happen. And at the moment, there's not even a referendum question. And that doesn't take into account all of the other people who are... Um, who are against constitutional recognition, the sovereignty um, movement and um, some of the other movements as well. So I think it's uh, very critical that the media gives equal airtime and equal sort of column inches to all of those schools of thought. And it's up to the general public then to make up their mind on, on the best way forward.
2: Summer May, we'll come to you on this one. Uh, what does the Australian media need to understand about how to approach this issue?
1: Um, I have to agree with the other two um, speakers there. There needs to be a a very balanced conversation about this and there needs to be a recognition that there is diversity of opinions amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and those, those diversity of opinions often come from people that don't get heard in the media. There are some very obvious people that are regularly spoken to about Aboriginal issues, but I think it's really important that the media also focus on other voices as well and and make sure that um, everyone's had an opportunity to express their opinions and their concerns.
2: Interesting. We'll come. We'll come to the issue of um, representation or or misrepresentation, if you like, a little a little bit later. Um, But um, with uh, a referendum for um, constitutional recognition, really, this wouldn't be the first time that a document tries to recognize First Peoples with. Um, the letters patent, 1836, in, in South Australia. Malandieri, can can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and whether that's made any difference?
0: Certainly, Raph. Uh, that document in 1836 was decreed by the then King George IV, who declared that because South Australia was to be a free colony uh, as compared to New South Wales, which was uh, the founding colony for the British, Uh, he saw, uh, from my understanding of uh, what I've read on it, is that the King saw that the treatment of Aboriginal people was so atrocious uh, and the killing of Aboriginal people uh, in what was then known as the early colonial days of New South Wales declared that uh, the free state of South Australia should uh, give Aboriginal people rights and land rights and recognise uh, their dignity as uh, as people. But that uh, extraordinary... Uh, protocol was never followed through, RAF. And when I spoke to people in South Australia just last week for NAIDOC Week, which was, which was the focus of National NAIDOC, uh, the Aboriginal mob in Adelaide, who I spoke with about this, uh, people like Steve Goldsmith, who has done a documentary on this called The King's Seal, he says that why do we want to be recognised again when in 1836 we were actually formally Decreed to be recognised, so the question for the Aboriginal people of South Australia is what has improved for us as Australians in that time?
2: Mm. Alan, do you know has it made any difference
3: well, as me says it's a uh, you know it's an an issue that's ongoing in that um, there there was this royal decree or this um, you know that recognised or internationally recognised the inhumane treatment of Aboriginal people that was never followed through i think throughout our history there have been documents in goodwill but never but a lot of them have never been followed through to the letter of the law and so i guess as Malindy was saying last uh, you know last week during nadoc week people were asking themselves well you know the the sort of the motherland if you like or the the colonizers originally had recognized the inhumane treatment since then nothing still happened so what has happened for us since then so what do we get from being recognized in in I guess as they call it the um the um, birth certificate of our nation um, when when trust is is sort of barely there um, historically so I think that's an interesting question that the, all of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community has to answer and say, well, do we see a benefit from constitutional recognition? If so, what would it look like? Mm-hmm. Or should we be um, swinging on the other side and saying, no, we're... We never ceded this land. We don't recognise this document as a legal document in the first place. So mm. I think it brings up a lot of issues.
2: It's interesting that you questioned um, the very thoughts of of um, of making that change, um, because I'd like to come to the point of some of the messages that um, you know that are coming across. I mean. Um, New Matilda's Amy McGuire, she wrote a piece critical of the Recognize campaign recently. She quoted Bill Shorten who believes that it's time for Australia to be debating what sort of referendum to support, and not, a, not whether or not we support recognition, um, but what form of recognition to support. So it's, it's, uh, it seems to be quite strong. Is, uh, is the mainstream narrative imposing certain boundaries on what's acceptable to be debated in, in this issue? Um, Summer?
1: Um. I think that there has been a, a large movement, i.e. recognise, which has been focusing on a very simplistic um, narrative around constitutional recognition. And I really strongly feel that Aboriginal people need a space where we can actually discuss it behind closed doors and actually air our views independently of non-Aboriginal people to decide what it is that we will or will what won't settle for. Um, And I think if we don't actually have that opportunity and Aboriginal people, again, sidelined when it comes to our own issues, there is going to be a a continued pushback on on all things constitutional recognition by um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Um, And I think, you know, again, it is really important that we are heard and that we have an opportunity to have a voice in this debate.
2: Why, why, why does that happen? Why are Aboriginal people sidelined from mainstream media and having their voice heard? Alan, let's hear from you on this one.
3: In, in Australia's media landscape, you've always had very dominant kind of uh, media voices, um, strongly aligned with certain political persuasions, certain um, sort of aligning themselves with certain, I guess, so-called Aboriginal leaders. Um, and so therefore you get a, you know, often a... Um, you know the voices of of only a few uh, over the years. Um, I think Aboriginal people uh, as a whole have always been uh, voiceless in in remote communities in in regional areas. I come from a place called Burke, um, and I've I know growing up um, seeing how media had reported on my hometown, and I could never reconcile with that with the realistic. Um, you know, the way we actually lived, our, our actual lifestyle, mm-hmm. compared to the the horrific headlines that one of the tabloid newspapers always sort of used about my hometown. So I think there's always been a, um, you know, a sensationalism around Aboriginal issues. Um, only now is, uh, I do see a subtle shift in that as more new media come up, um, things like NITV News, are starting to give voices to those people in remote regional areas i'm seeing a shift in in those ideas and perceptions on on indigenous issues but as as um summer mentioned there in this whole constitutional recognition debate it is it is so big and it's moving perceptibly fast that people can't catch up even the the aboriginal people in and Torres Strait Islanders involved in the process still don't know where this is going to lead and so i think therefore once once that starts to happen people are suspicious people are um worried about what the actual outcomes will be in the end and um unfortunately big mainstream newspapers do have what you know people to speak speak to their particular issues so i think you're only getting um Sometimes a very monocultural view from certain media outlets. So,
2: Malandieri, with you heading heading a team at NITV News, um, obviously there's a, a certain angle, you know, a certain voice that you're trying to to make, you know, be heard. Um, would you agree with Alan and, and uh, that there's a little bit of a disconnect in mainstream media when you when you watch or or read something on mainstream media? How, how does that make you feel? Sometimes does it, you know, do you cringe or you know, what's the
0: well, clearly uh, there there is a disconnect uh, if uh, mainstream media has not been able to grasp uh, the deeper meaning and the deeper issues that impact on uh, First Nations peoples. I think the uh, movement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander media has been significant and its growth and journey with you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander journalists is, continu- is incredibly significant. If we look at uh, storytelling in itself, uh, the history of our people is about storytelling because we never wrote things down, we would sing it through what I call Gujiga from where I come from in the Yanua language which is the song lines and therefore that would be a form of storytelling about country, about culture and about relationship to one another. So. Unless uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are included in the conversation, any conversation, whether it's to do with constitutional issues, whether it's to do with jobs, whether it's to do with uh, education and health and housing, unless we're included, uh, it uh, makes for really dull reading.
2: Mm. You brought up some uh, different topics there. So obviously there's a a range of topics that affect Aboriginal and and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Do you feel that the the topic of um, constitutional recognition has somewhat overshadowed other topics in media in in the recent months or, or years?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you only have to look at NAIDOC week, which is the biggest week of the year for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across this country, yet the focus was on the Constitution. And yet we have incredibly high rates of incarceration. We have depressing uh, statistics on suicide. And here in every state and territory where people trying to be resilient, trying to be strong, celebrating the strength of culture. And that's what NAIDOC week is about. It's not about constitutional issues. However, uh, you know, the the government of the day, the parliament of the day decided to use the NAIDOC week as an opportunity to put it fair and square on the mainstream agenda, which it did quite successfully uh, for the mainstream media. But if you spoke to Aboriginal and Islander people across the country... Uh, while it is a conversation that they are having within their own groups, uh, was it the time to do it? That's another question to be put to people.
2: Mm, an interesting question of timing. You are on Fourth Estate with myself, Rafael Garcia, Malandiri McCarthy from NITV, Alan Clark from BuzzFeed and Summer Mae Finlay from Just Justice on our special NADOC edition of Fourth Estate. Malandiri, earlier this year, it was reported that SBS, which incorporated NITV in 2012, would be axing the nightly NITV News Bulletin by June, which, um, which you um, work on although neither jobs or airtime would be reduced and that a current affairs program would replace your news bulletin. Can you give us a bit of an update on where things are at? Obviously, you're still on air.
0: absolutely. And it's a wonderful thing, Raf. We are very much, very, very much on air, and I think uh, it's an absolute credit to the team at NITV and uh, certainly uh, the news journalists as well. There is incredible passion to make sure that the news of First Nations people is very much a pivotal point of the NITV channel, and we are certainly going from strength to strength, which is a beautiful thing to see.
1: Hmm.
2: Um, Summer May, the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council's trailblazing magazine Tracker was shut down last year. They were citing issues with cost and, and effectiveness. The National Indigenous Times was placed into voluntary receivership last year as well. Are we witnessing a decline of the health of Aboriginal media in Australia?
1: Um, I, I think that I think that I think there's a, a range of other options available to people now, and print media generally is is, is more difficult than it was in the past. Um, I think a lot of Aboriginal people, as you'll see, are going online and blogging or are getting engaged with the Guardian. So I think that it's it's, it's that um, print media in itself is quite difficult, and, and the conversation is shifting to an online form.
2: Mm. Alan, what do you think?
3: Um, I think that's exactly right. I um, I started in print many years ago uh, at Fairfax and watched, uh, and, then, and then left for television and watched many of my former colleagues um, fall for by the wayside and, and watched the decline of print. And I think that's just reflected also in Aboriginal print as well. Um, I think Tracker the, there were more issues in regards to I don't you know in terms of they were being funded by New South Wales Land Council. So I think that was their own issue rather than a readership issue Um, however there is a whole new space opening up online on twitter um, on facebook on blogs and it's really exciting to see I left uh, I'd worked for 60 years at the living black program at SBS and you know I, I I left them to work in a purely online space. Um, I, I'm sorry, I went to ABC first for, you know, on television. So I worked for ABC for two years and then went to an online space. It was really terrifying jumping out of that television bubble because that is a, such a small industry. Um, but I thought it was exciting enough to, to warrant to give it a go, to give it a go really. Mm-hmm. And what amazed me about, um, say, BuzzFeed Australia is that um, it's an international company one of its first, uh, you know, items of, of business was to hire an Indigenous affairs reporter. So mm. there's there's four journalists there at the moment, five journalists, um, with an LGBT reporter, an Indigenous affairs reporter, and, and two politics reporters, which I think is fantastic. And I think, you know, wow, you would not see that in any Australian mainstream media. Mm. Um, those rounds are normally sort of niche or periphery. So um, that's what's exciting. The Guardian is just, um, you know, really embracing Indigenous Australia. And, it, you know, it's such a shame that it takes an international company, BuzzFeed's American, Guardians of the UK, to, to actually come here and say, you know, and actually invest in our it stories. It shouldn't be
0: unique, should it? No, and it mm.
3: shouldn't be unique. Mm. And I think that's a really exciting sort of taste of things to come.
2: Melantiri, is it helpful to have in one organization, for example, such as BuzzFeed, as Alan has just described, an Indigenous Affairs reporter, uh, an LGBTI reporter? Uh, is, is that helpful or are we segregating or, uh, and boxing these journalists into um, areas? In, you know, Certainly they could be reporting about all sorts of topics.
0: Oh, look, Raf, it's about choice. I think... Uh, it's really really important that a journalist irrespective of their background uh, their age whatever their beliefs that they have the choice to choose as journalists to go forward critically they must be good journalists they must know how to ask the questions they must know how to write they must have the skills to interview so I think the basics are very very pivotal uh, to any journalist you go the next step and say that um, being a specialist journalist now, if you're an Aboriginal or Islander person and you want to work predominantly on Aboriginal Islander issues, good luck. Go for it. Do it well, but ask the questions and the hard questions of all the Aboriginal organisations. You know, make sure that you're giving balance within those issues and and the conflicts or the the good things about those issues. If you're a non-Indigenous journalist and you want to step into the space of uh, Indigenous affairs reporting, good luck to you. Make sure that you get yourself the cultural protocol of training and learning that you need because my my view is that the better informed uh, the Australian media is, the better it must be in terms of improving the lives, the disadvantage for First Nations people.
2: Summer, let's come to you for a moment. Um, I, I'm always conscious of um, you feeling like you're you're just here in the studio yeah. <laughs> um, do you Do you feel that um, in, in Australian media do we have proper representation of Aboriginal peoples and their perspectives?
1: No um, that's an easy one. No, we don't um, i when I read the media, when I read the news, when I listen to the news, I don't see myself and my family reflected in the way that the media portrays Aboriginal people, it, it tends to be all about the deficit, which I find disturbing and quite upsetting because it really is a very narrow perspective of what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's lives are. And if you're just focusing on that, you're not actually understanding the whole range of things that are happening in an Aboriginal person's life. And it, and in my, my opinion, I actually think that the way the media often re- reports uh, on us um, as deficit actually helps... Maintain stereotyping, which is going to have negative effects for us, um, for our health, uh, when we're actually going out to work, whatever our, our, whatever we're doing, if we continue to perpetrate, perpetrate stereotypes through the media, then that's really only going to keep us from achieving what we can achieve.
2: And, and do you feel that mainstream media keep on going back to the same personalities to, to speak on behalf of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples?
1: Yes, we we do have some uh, people that are, are regularly contacted and I guess that's one of the reasons with Just Justice that I was very keen to get involved is because while we will actually be speaking to researchers and organisations about the over-incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, we actually are going to be working with community members or people on the ground who are working in the industry who are actually seeing um, what's happening and also they're actually engaged in the solutions, so we're beginning hearing from people that actually know what's really, really happening, and I think that's really important, and that's often what's missed, um, and that's one of the exciting things about being engaged with um, a new outlet like Crokey, which is actually looking for solutions, looking for positivity, and looking to engage with people that may often get overlooked.
2: And it's interesting with um, Just Justice that you've managed to raise some $30,000 towards funding this series of upcoming articles. Um, Would you be able to to talk a little bit more about um, where that's at?
1: Yeah, so we actually kick off this week. We're going to be posting our first article as a funded um, campaign this week, which is very exciting. Um, So we, I I have to say that we only had one organisation who actually put in a a reasonably large donation, and that was the Jesuits, um, which we're very grateful for. So the rest of it was actually donated by concerned people, the general public. We had one very large donation from another individual. Um, So we were very, very excited to actually see that there were people that were as interested in what we were talking about and as interested in hearing solutions rather than continuing to hear the the stereotypes and also the um, negative statistics. Hmm.
2: And you're actually planning to pay contributors, aren't you? Why, Why do you think that's an important thing to do?
1: Ah, I mean, every Aboriginal person knows that um, you're expected to do things for the love of the community all the time. And if you did everything for the love of the community, you'd never actually be able to get any work done for yourself. Um, So we think it's really important that we actually show people that we value their stories, not just by telling them, but we're valuing their time by actually paying them to assist us in in, in the storytelling.
2: You're in Fourth Estate. I'm Rafael Garcia, speaking to Malandziri McCarthy, Alan Clark and Summer May Finlay. Malandziri, do, does, does crowdfunding sound like a, a viable way of um, funding independent journalism in future?
0: I think if you're fortunate enough to receive crowdfunding, it's obviously uh, indicative of the content in which you're trying to get out there. And I'd say to people like Summer and others who are trying to do that, Uh, Good on you, you know, good on you for trying to do that because the more voices that we have out there, and clearly through social media, that's where the voiceless have a chance to have their voice. Uh, this is something I've certainly noticed uh, on the rise in terms of stories that we receive and that we follow up with NITV News through Facebook, through Twitter, and as Alan said earlier, you know all of the on- online capabilities. So crowdfunding, yes, is certainly one way to to look at that. But again, you know that has to have scrutiny as well. If you've got one particular group that has invested. Um, a significant amount of money, you need to make sure that they're not expecting certain things in return. So so there has to be that, that fine balance.
2: Hmm. The Guardian runs a, a program where they train regular citizens, let's call them, to to tell their own stories, something that they say has been quite successful in getting an insight into anything that's not quite so mainstream. Um, Alan, h- how well does the Australian media do in general in, in getting you know regular citizens uh, to report on their own stories. Is that something we, you know, media does well? Do we engage with regular citizens quite well or?
3: Um I don't think we're quite there yet. I think if you're talking about indigenous community people, mm-hmm. um as, no, never. Um I mean occasionally you will see a a, a positive story or a or maybe a really good opinion piece from an Aboriginal person that maybe um, you haven't heard from before about a community issue. But generally, I really think it is... um, The the Australian media industry is so small and so uh, clicky in a lot of ways that um, it's very hard for them to look outside of um, their own um, parameters that they've set for themselves over the the decades. So I think... um, that's why this sort of online um presence is is really giving people a chance to to be um to have a voice um particularly on Twitter um things like indigenous x um some of the other blogs uh the stuff summer's doing you know it's amazing to see all of that um suddenly all of these different diversity of opinions and i think that's gone in a, gone some ways into breaking down this notion that the entire Indigenous community is uh, you know, unified in one voice. In fact, we are all, all different. In fact, we all have different issues. In fact, we all have different opinions. And so I think that's starting to bubble through, but that's not coming from mainstream media, I don't think. I think um, mainstream media is still reporting uh, or, or utilising the same people. But um, I applaud people like The Guardian for... Um, for being able to to do that on their website, I really enjoy reading those those really interesting um sort of um it's, it's sort of a different take on an opinion piece really, but I I think that's really interesting and and they and they share very well on on social media, which is great. You know, a lot mm. of non indigenous people reading reading that as well. So
2: yeah. fantastic. That brings us to the end of this special edition of Fourth Estate, where we've been discussing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's issues in media just off the back of NAIDOC Week. Thank you so much to our guests, Malandiri McCarthy from NITV.
0: Thank you, Ref.
2: And Alan Clark from BuzzFeed. Thank you very much. And Summer May Finlay from Just Justice. Thanks very much. Fourth Estate is produced from the studios of 2SER and broadcast across the country on the community radio network. Don't forget, you can check out all of our podcasts on the 2SER website, as well as iTunes and SoundCloud. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. My name is Rafael Garcia, and you can catch us again at the same time next week. Until then, have a great one.